The Start On Demand. On demand. Have you ever found a package slip on your door while you were home and no one knocked? A postal worker in Ontario got caught on video putting a slip on someone's door without even attempting to deliver the package. What would you like to do over? It's safe to say Brexit has been a colossal boondoggle, prompting many, I'm sure, to wish for a do-over. We'll speak to a professor on internet law regarding the 14-year-old girl who was arrested in Winnipeg after a social media threat at Arthur Day Middle School. And have you heard of ketosis? We'll dig behind the science of the keto diet. I'm Brett McGarry, alongside Greg Mackling and Loren McNabb. We are Mackling, McGarry and McNabb, and this is the Thursday, January 17th podcast for The Start. So there's a situation here, Greg. We start this half hour with Canada Post. What happened? Well, I think we've all been in this uh, situation before where we've come home or maybe we've come downstairs and or opened the door and there's a little tag on our door. I didn't hear the doorbell. I didn't hear anybody knock. Video uploaded to YouTube appears to show a Canada Post worker visiting a Georgina, Ontario home to deliver just and leave the slip without attempting to deliver the parcel. In the video, a Canada Post truck could be seen pulling up in front of the property Monday afternoon. After about a minute, the postal worker exited the vehicle without a package. Instead, the worker can be seen running up to the house holding a delivery slip. So in theory, are they you would they would come to your house with the parcel, you're not home, they go back to the truck, get the slip, put the slip on your door. In I, would, theory. I, I would think, or at least maybe they have some slips on them that they can right. fill out but when the you package, don't answer. The attempt would be to drop the package first. Correct. In the poster of the video, who only wanted to be identified as Chris, told Global News his wife was home when she saw the employee walking up to their place. By the time she got to the door, he was already leaving with without so much as a knock. The woman manages to get the worker's attention, and he comes back to the door with the package. Here's some audio from that video. Sorry about that. That's okay. Usually there's no deal on that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yep. No problem. Uh, first initial. Uh, last initial. And. Yeah. Uh, sorry, last name. Perfect. Actually helps me because I don't have to bring it back. No worries. <laughs> Perfect. Thanks very much. You're if very you just welcome. want to rip that card up for me, that this... was left on the door. Oh, yes, yeah, Thank you. I think she says no problem there. I don't think she was sincere about that. In case you couldn't make out what the postal worker says, he says, there's usually nobody home. That's why. While the woman appeared to sign for the package, he could he could be heard saying that her being home helped him as it means he won't have to come back. So the guy who posted this video, Chris, said later in the evening that his intention was it only to be for Canada Post. He wanted them to investigate. They said they would. He hasn't heard back. But he also said this has happened to him on numerous occasions, but he was only able to capture it on video this time because he recently installed security cameras. Now, in a statement to Global News, Canada Post said what happened shouldn't have occurred. What While the customer received the parcel, it should have been delivered at the time the employee arrived at the address. We have followed up and don't anticipate further issues. So again, they're supposed to bring the parcel to your door, you're not there, then they put that slip. But but this has had a lot of people say, yeah, that's what they're doing all the time because it's probably true in the sense most people aren't home. And so do they need to, or is the Canada Post employee thinking, do I need to go through the effort of bringing the parcel if they're hardly ever there? Is that the rationale? Well, I wonder then should the way the Canada Post does things be a little bit different if they're delivering the bulk of their parcels when people are not at home, should they be delivering them when they're at home? Well, I've referenced the fact that I, I'm a milk that I was a milkman once upon a time, and I know that there was a, a time when my dad, who I was in business with, 
we contemplated delivering in the evening versus the morning because we were coming in the middle of the night and you couldn't find the payment and, you know, milk would freeze in the wintertime, a, a litany of things that could go wrong. And we thought maybe we need to adjust this business model just because people have been delivering milk in the middle of the night for 80 years doesn't mean we have to continue to do it that way. And I think you might be right, Brett. They might need to think about altering things. But, you know, at the very least, so if a majority of people aren't home, could you not then alter the way you do it, take the tag in anticipation of people not being home, knock on the door, wait for 45 seconds, knowing that most time people are not going to answer. But in the odd time when they do answer, then you run back to the truck to get the parcel Mm -hmm. as opposed to, you know, pretending to do it the right way. Alter the way that is acceptable in terms of the prescription and your job description. Yeah, we hear all other stories of packages just being sort of chucked over the fence or sort of shoehorned into the door or sort of like rammed through the mail slot or whatever. We hear all kinds of things, and who knows what the history is of this situation. Maybe this guy has delivered packages to this address before and they haven't been home, so he just made a decision in that moment. You know, these people Mm -hmm. aren't home. They're never home, so... For all we know, that is the case. Could be. And this, and honestly, like, you know, it's captured on video. We probably all have stories that are similar, but then sometimes it's a one-off. It's an anomaly. You might have, you know, in some part, I feel bad because it paints all Canada Post employees as this got as this person doing sort of what I would call the lazy way out when I know that isn't true. But I do think they have to re-figure out how to do business because there are enough people who think it's not going well. Now we're getting some uh, people saying, well, would you want people ringing your doorbell at 9 p.m. for a package? And you really can't do it in the evening. Some packages are really big. Why take it off the truck if no one's there? Well, that's what Greg's saying. Don't take it off the truck. Go to the door Don't. with a slip. Knock on the door. Then if they happen to be home, which might be the rare occurrence, then you go back and, and, not, and then, that, then they're not carrying the package Alter for zero reason. the process for the majority of situations. And if genuinely the in majority of situations people are not home, mm-hmm. then make that part of the process. Yeah. That that would be my thought. Well, if you have a solution, text us, 204-780-6868. Somebody saying if the postie came by at dinner time, I could use them as a convenient scapegoat to ditch the telemarketer. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. And Jared texting on our previous topic, who drowns seafood with butter and salt? Everyone, Jared. I hear where you're coming from. He's Except saying it, Jared. He, well, he's saying it tastes better without the butter, which if that's my always been my thing. If you really like seafood, is it the seafood or is it the butter? But I don't know anyone in my life who does not drown it in butter. Yeah, Jared says lobster, crab, and mussels are great on their own. Butter is gross, all greasy and slimy. Yeah, I I've, I've only had lobster a couple of times, and I got to be honest, I, I found it, if not for the butter, it would have been an, an extremely underwhelming experience. But I know that there's a whole, it's, I think that's, that's maybe the thing, the reason why people enjoy it. It's the experience of, you know, sort of tearing it apart mm-hmm. with your, with your hands or whatever. I also just, I, I don't like lobster when I see them in the tank just waiting Agreed. to yeah. die. It's, I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't like it. Are you, is there, are you making the sound of a lobster? <laughs> See the little beady eyes looking at you, please don't eat me, Brett. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I, then of course, then I just order a steak because it's not the... So, uh-huh. so then I still feel guilty. Like, well, I couldn't have the lobster because I could see the lobster, but I'm happy to eat the steak. How many of us would eat steak if the cows were roaming around in the front of the keg? And he, yeah, I'll take that. No, no. No, that guy right there. (laughs) Not happening. (laughs) I'll have the cauliflower steak. Which apparently is very good. The cauliflower steak? Yeah. Hey, I'd be willing to just try it. No, I'll try it. You're grossed out by the idea of the radish and the butter. I never said I'm grossed out. Don't call it a steak. A steak is a steak. It's a cauliflower patty or something. But you're grossed out by the radish and the butter. Yeah, I know. I am grossed out by that. Just try it. No. You try it and you tell me how it goes. I guarantee I'll like it if you put butter (laughs) on it. Mackling, McGarry, McNabb, British Prime Minister Theresa May has been consulting opposition parties and other lawmakers in a battle to put Brexit back on track after surviving a no-confidence vote, though there was little immediate sign of a breakthrough from talks branded a stunt by the main opposition leader. So, safe to say this whole Brexit thing has been just a disaster, and probably a lot of people wishing for a do-over. So we thought we'd have a chat 
about do-overs. We've all got them. Curious to know what you would do over Jeff Braun. Nothing. Wow, good no, for you. No, I'm one of these guys that really believes that, you know. No what, regrets. Yeah, and whatever happened in the past led me to where I am today, and if I change something back then, today might be different, and I like where today is. So. Just as long as you don't get that t- tattoo on your chest that says no regrets. <laughs> right? Yeah. You've all seen that one on the internet? If I had to pick something, I would, you know, choose to have never lit a cigarette in my life, but... That would be so mine. No going back on that, son. Yeah, that would be mine. Uh, I remember that. I remember the party. It was 19 years old, turning 20. Ooh, uh, late bloomer. Yeah, it was 1997. <laughs> it was at a buddy's cabin at Winnipeg Beach, and uh, didn't smoke at the time. I'd never wanted to smoke, but I'm a curious person, so I, I'd be lying to you if I had told you I never wondered what it was like seeing many of my friends partake in this particular vice. Fast forward to the late Friday evening. Party's winding down. Another guy says, hey, let's go find a cigarette. It'll help you with your buzz because, you know, we'd be drinking. <laughs> and uh, so he goes and finds one. He lights it up, takes a few puffs. I, I, I hadn't intended on doing it, but he turns to me and says, just try it. So I drunkenly say, no, get that away from me. I don't want it. But he pushed me, and I, I relented. And, I co- of course, I coughed and wheezed and hacked and gagged, hated it. But he says, don't try it again. Yeah, so I, do, I don't know why I tried again. What is he, the devil? Did yeah. you call him once a year and yell <laughs> at him or he, something? He felt guilty for years this, for that. This is oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. So he is a good friend then. So he I felt guilty. I tried it, and I didn't gag on that second drag. It went down smooth. I liked it. And then the next day we split a pack, and that's basically all it took. I didn't immediately start smoking, but I was bumming cigarettes when we go out, and eventually I was craving them more and more. It only took a couple of months before I was buying my own, and uh, that was a 20-year-plus addiction for me. So I often wonder, how would my life have gone had I made a different choice that day? But I also know my curiosity probably would have eventually led me to try it. But I'm kind of like you, Jeff. Like Even though it was a terrible habit and it affected my health and it gobbled up so much of my money, I, I don't know if I'd be in the same spot. I also like where you yeah. put it so so poetically mm-hmm. i know right? i like where today is at <laughs> i often wonder too and i don't like uh, you've seen the movie sliding doors perhaps with yes. paltrow and the Very idea good. of uh it, it sets the scene of two different paths that she could have taken based on one decision and at the end i don't want to be the spoiler but i wonder in life are you going to end up at the same spot regardless maybe not at the same time maybe not in the same place maybe not with the same person or is that little thing the thing that really set you down a course that is so very different than what it would have been if you had just taken that left turn, hypothetically speaking? This is a discussion that should be happening at 2 in the morning. <laughs> we haven't had a Out at Brett's friend's cabin. And I, don't, I don't need a cigarette. I think I need something stronger than that to, to go into it. No. I, I, like it's Sometimes it's little things like I wish I hadn't had salt and vinegar chips at 7 p.m. last night because my tongue feels like it's peeling. But for, for me, it's more... Or like there are things that you maybe oh. wouldn't do over, but like if you could talk to your young self again to, and I should say this to me today, even to relax a little bit more or enjoy things in the moment. And I mean, anything from like rocking my baby to sleep to when I took a trip, not always looking for the next best thing, but enjoying the best thing I was in at on that day. And, and that for me is more of the do over. That's exactly like what I was thinking. Um, Cause back in high school, my band teacher, and I wish I listened to him. He wanted me to uh, join, um, the jazz band, but uh, that's after school, and I had to work, and I want a car, but I wish I listened to him. He said, you have your whole life to work, but you only have right now to be young and to do a bunch of stuff that you want to do, but instead, I end up working, and I haven't been on a vacation, which I'm actually going on next week, but I haven't been on a vacation since I was 15, so I wow. wish I listened to him. Kelly, do you wow. want to tell him, or should I, that you, you ex-nayed the, the vacation? You couldn't... Uh... <laughs> You couldn't approve his couldn't vacation, approve vacation time because we'll we can't get, live without Jeff. We'll wait till Friday. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I do want to know what what instrument would it have been, Jeff? Oh, I played percussion, so drums, oh, percussion, yeah, all that. That's another do-over for me. I, w- I took clarinet and band, and I wish I, I wanted to do the drums, and I wish I had done the drums. You should have done it. I, I still find myself air drumming. I, I And, you know, I like Brett Smash. I, you know, it would have been fun to play an <laughs> instrument where I could hit something. Kelly? I was just going to say, you would have needed a pretty tough drum skin to <laughs> survive a bread smash. <laughs> you know, I, I've tried to live by the theory that all you get from looking back is a sore neck. But uh, you know what? I, I <laughs> it's also, a good t-shirt. I also like to subscribe to the theory that the mistakes you've made 
make sure that you use those uh, to make good decisions in going forward. So that's kind of how I've, I've kind of looked at things. Well, I've had at least 7,000 bags of salt and vinegar chips every night. So, Or not every night, but close. So I've learned nothing. So, well, <laughs> what, what you should have learned, Loren, is the next time they all go in the garbage. I should just picture Kelly Moore just staring Even at just me. Or, or send them to school with your kids. <laughs> You've learned that you love salt and vinegar chips. Maybe just right. a different so flavor of chips. No. I hurt your tongue a, as much. I'm going to get a whole case of them and leave them at <laughs> McNabb's desk. Greg, any uh, do-overs for you? Yeah, there's one big one. I'm sitting here and we have the TV on and you can see Melbourne, the Australian Open, is on the television. I might might be the only person that you'll ever meet that had a plane ticket to go to Australia and never used it. Yeah, I had to forfeit a, a, a trip to Australia due to other life circumstances, and I could have found a way to do it, and I didn't, and I regret it to this very day. I know I would have come back, uh, you know, because some people have this notion they're going to go to Australia and never come back. I didn't have that idea. just... I wanted to go and I wanted to see a few things, including celebrating New Year's in Sydney Harbor. And that's that's my biggest regret in life is that I did not get on that plane in, on Boxing Day Still of 2001. Uh, yeah, it's going to cost me mm-hmm. four times as much now, Kelly, because it's not just me. Yeah. Yeah. Got to take the rugrats along. And, do and, you? Yes. Question mark? Yeah, you do. <laughs> We start this hour with school threats on social media. So this follows a 14-year-old Winnipeg girl who was charged yesterday with uttering threats after police say she posted about starting a school shooting online. That threat caused a hold and secure at Arthur Day Middle School in Transcona on Monday. And while police have since said they don't believe the threat from that team was credible, the team will still have to explain her actions in court. It's only the latest in a series of school threats that we have talked about here on CGOB. And, of course, they're keeping officials busy, police busy, and mums and dads would understandably be concerned. Brett Carraway teaches internet law and social media at the University of Toronto and joins us on the phone now. Good morning, Brett. Good morning. Are we hearing more about these just because of the prevalence, do you think, of social media? Or are there actually that, is, is there actually a growing threat with just teens doing this online? I think if you're listening to the statements that are being made by the provincial police and by um, school security experts, people in that in those fields are saying that they're seeing more and more of these incidents. I'm not aware of a uh, an academic study or something along those lines that has attempted to sort of quantify what's going on. But certainly, if you listen to the people on the front lines of having to deal with these situations, you get the sense that there is an increase in the amount of uh, threats being made against schools. Do you get the sense that some of these are a lack of understanding about how your statements can come back to haunt you and that people are feeling a little bit more comfortable behind a keyboard versus something they might utter out loud, Brett? Yeah, so I think there's a big disconnect uh, among a lot of people, both uh, in terms of children but adults as well, about you know the difference between what happens online and what happens offline. Um, but you can't if you're if you're operating in the field of education or law enforcement, you can't afford you, or I guess you don't have the luxury of um, saying, well, that's probably innocent or maybe this one should be taken seriously. Uh, you have to take them all seriously, which is what puts such a tremendous drain on both educators and law enforcement, but also parents and students who are going to school every day. You know, there's a psychological toll to all of this. We talked about in the past that, you know, when, when we went to school and Greg and Brett and I, someone might pull a fire alarm. And that might be a way to, you know, if it's about getting out of classes or just being angry at your teachers or what have you. But there still was a potential charge of that, I think, of mischief or other. Uh, In this case, in this most recent case in Winnipeg, the police have charged the team with uttering threats, but have also in the same sentence said they don't think the threat was real or she intended to act it out. And so where do you find the balance there when it comes to court? I mean, let's start first with what she could end up facing for a punishment. Okay, so there's... There's two things, um, you know, that that happen, right? There's an actual um, intent to carry out a a violent act um, or, heaven forbid, actually carrying out uh, an act of violence. And and that's obviously a a crime to its unto itself. But also 
there's a separate crime here, which is the utterance of threat. And and they, I've, you know, the police have stated that this particular juvenile um, didn't appear to have the means to carry out the threat and maybe didn't even have the intention to carry out the threat. But the question under this particular law is about the intent to instill instill fear in, in the person or the, the group to which you're making the, the threat. And that's a that's a separate crime. And. Um, if they can show that the intent was to, you know, put people on edge, then then there's something going on there. So in terms of the punishment, uh, if you make a threat against a person, like you say, you can inflict bodily harm or you're going to kill someone, um, the statute provides for a sentence of up to five years for that. If, on the other hand, you just threaten I don't know, uh, a piece of property, like uh, say you say something like you're going to burn a building down um, or you threaten somebody's dog or cat or something like that, a piece of property, um, you can still be sentenced. But I think it's up to a maximum of two years for that. So let's say, for example, uh, a kid goes online, puts this out into the world, but really it's it's later revealed it's, it was just like a cry for help or they were seeking desperate for attention or something like that. But they still did it. So, can is that does that kind of taken into account when they're weighing what this person could be punished with? Yeah. So I think I think that the courts would take that into consideration, um, especially when you're trying to establish the intent. You know, and that would come up in that question: Is did this individual intend to instill fear in somebody? Um, you know, was it a cry for help? Was it? A joke was it sarcasm but you know kids have to still be told that this is a very serious issue um, I'm from Austin Texas and there's a sort of notorious case down in Austin Texas where a, a, a juvenile uttered threats in the context of online video games I think he got I can't remember the circumstances but I think he got angry at somebody and made some sort of threat but it was in the context of like a video game but that that individual was uh, basically put in jail awaiting prison time and had a very traumatic experience while in the jail. And, you know, they were kind of caught in a legal purgatory for a while there. So, you know, this is serious business. And I think we would do our children justice to, you know, explain to them what the impact, the potential impact of these sorts of statements online is. Brett, I don't know if you're a hockey fan or not, but we'll, we'll see these uh, suspensions sometimes for a deliberate int- or an intent to injure. That's in the language of, of of just about every sport league. There's a penalty that you can get for intent to do this or that. Well, it, intent is a difficult thing to measure, is it not? Yeah, I think so. And I think it's... Uh... I think it's even more difficult when you're dealing with juveniles. I mean, part of what you want to do is sort of strike a a balance, right? When you're dealing with children, you want to hold them accountable to some extent, right? Because just like an adult, they've committed an act that's, you know, in this situation, if it turns out that they're guilty, that they've committed an act that's criminal. But on the other hand, a child has a greater chance, at least typically in the court's view, a child has a greater chance of being rehabilitated. So you don't necessarily want to throw the book at them and, and throw their entire life away when there's a greater chance that a, a juvenile versus someone you know who's a hardened criminal has a chance to sort of rejoin society as a productive member. And that's why that question of how to determine the intent is so important. But, you know, part of the reason I think kids are so likely to do this is because they're not adults and they, they, they don't have fully developed like conflict resolution skills they're still developing. And if they don't have conflict resolution skills, they're likely, you know, in my generation, we were likely to just settle, settle it through a battle of fists on the, on the playground. But I think this current generation tends to settle it in online form. And, you know, that still has a very serious impact, just as serious as, as getting into a fight on the playground. Brett Carraway, not more so. Brett Carraway teaches internet law and social media at the University of Toronto. Brett, thank you so much for joining us this morning. We appreciate the time. My pleasure.
Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. Question of the day at cjob.com. Brought to you by Mr. Furnace. Don't call them first. You'll see why. Call Mr. Furnace, 204-832-6243. And the question at cjob.com. Have you ever found a package slip at your door while you were home and no one knocked? This has to do with a story we told you about earlier where a postal worker in Ontario appeared to run up to a house leave the slip on the door, and just try to run away without delivering a package. But someone inside the home spotted the guy and said, Hi, I'm here. Oh, good. I, you know, you're here? Yeah. I, no, usually no one's home at this time. So uh, I was just going to leave the slip. And he was caught on video while this occurred. So far, 57% say yes. 43% say no. You can log on to cjob.com. I've put the poll on Instagram as well. And we'll get it up on Twitter and Facebook too. You can see the video at globalnews.ca. But I, I like your reenactment of it even better than the actual video, Brad. Mm-hmm. Well a bit more animated, plus you can yes. hear the audio. Yeah, I can good. almost picture you, like, in that postal uniform, doing your slow walk to the oh, front I, step. I would totally do that, yeah. yeah. I'd, be, I'd be that guy. Yeah. You think so? Yeah. <laughs> yeah oh, <probably>. you're <laughs> home. Busted. Yeah, yeah that's, that's right. Yeah, when I because uh, I, I have worked in a union environment before, and... Uh, they're unionized, right? Yeah, they're, and uh, I, I admit that uh, I, I, I was not one of the better workers in that union. I, it takes me to, to I'm better, sir, better suited not being in a union than I work. I actually work hard and work to what I believe is a proper work ethic. So there you go. Next segment, we want to tee up the uh, HSE Radiothon, the Hope to Life Radiothon, by introducing you to a doctor and a patient, and this patient who would not be alive likely without this doctor. It's a great story. We're excited to share it with you. But we start this half hour with this. Beginning of a of an adult entertainment video. Yeah, honestly, it could be. But it takes me not. a while to figure out where this was going. <laughs> Those are car wash sound effects. Are they? They are. I did ask you to find some car wash effects well, this morning. I did. Did I say I did please I throw told. in some seventies disco music in the background? Well, the song is called <laughs> Car Wash. After all, who does the song? I can't remember. Okay. <laughs> And uh, yeah, it sounded like a theme song for something else. A similar, kind of reminds me of a, of a music bed that I have. Is this Christina Aguilera? This well, one might no, be. No, this is Rose Royce. Oh, as, Rose Royce. I, I just pulled up my yeah. screen here. That's right. Okay. Christina Aguilera did do uh, a, a version of this oh, for an animated picture. Okay, I saw you play that earlier. Missy Elliott. Yeah, but the, the music bed I was referring to was called Cramming for College. I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> but anyway, uh, Car Wash. One of our listeners emailed us this morning and said, only in Winnipeg do you find a lineup of people outside the car wash when it's minus 20 outside. Hey, let's face it. You're getting a good deal right now because if you wash your car today and if the forecast is accurate, your car should be clean for at least two weeks. Okay, I'm curious though because I've always been worried and I'm just doing some Googling now that when it gets below like a certain freezing point that you could impact the tires, the rubber on your tires, the water freezing in different spots and all the rest if you don't dry it properly. So is there such thing as too cold to wash your car? Well, they will close the car washes when it gets too cold. In fact, I think the co-op on Marion last night, I stopped to get gas around nine o'clock last night and it was closed. Wow. So yes, uh, it can be too cold, but I agree with you. I go to the extent where I'll go somewhere where either I'll do the full service Mm Or I will go somewhere where they've got uh, the air hose so that you can clean out your locks and all that sort of thing. So, yeah. I have been wanting to wash my car now for a couple of months. It's just gross. Mm-hmm. It's so gross. But every time it cools off, it's been it's strange winter where it warms up again. And then the road. So there, it was essentially pointless to wash the car because I have a gift card or a coupon for a full wash at Midtown. Nice. Yeah. And I've, I've always heard great things about that How place. How much do you want for that? <laughs> You're not getting it. But I've been wanting, I, I haven't, 
I didn't want to waste it. I didn't want to go there knowing that my car was going to be filthy again the next day. I would like to enjoy it at least for a 48-hour period. I gotcha. But it's been so long, I honestly don't remember the last time I washed my car. And your coat, is your coat filthy? My coats have been washed so many times this winter because of that weird cycle you mentioned where it's like cold for a day, but then you have that week of slush. And so I've been leaning in to grab, say, hockey equipment out of the car or whatever. My coat's filthy. My car's filthy. Dave says, wash the car, then go to Superstore for their underground heated parking. Ah. You can shop and your car dries. Which Superstore is underground parking? I will ask School him. Road and Portage Avenue out oh, yes, in, in uh, Westwood. West, West, Westwood, Do yeah. you pay for it? No. What? That's yeah. a great idea because that's what that's always what I want to do. Get the car washed and then go park it underground somewhere for an hour. Or go to the Jets game early. Yep. They have a car wash in the underground parkade at the library and you can wash your wash your car there. Leave it for three, four hours. Good to go. We want you to save the date. Friday, January 25th, you can help the Health Sciences Centre Foundation with the Hope to Life Radiothon presented by Merrick Holmes. Listen to 680 CJOB and Power 97 from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. and hear what is possible thanks to many generous donors like you. You can make your gift today by visiting hopetolife.ca. Now, on the 25th, you're going to learn how supporters in our community have transformed the lives of loved ones throughout Manitoba. And we want to tell you a story of one of those transformed lives right now. We have two people to introduce you to. Dr. Chow Pham, Director of Ultrasound for the Department of Emergency Medicine at HSC, and one of her patients. Michael Houston. Michael was diagnosed with stage 4 lung cancer in May 2017 and had never smoked. In fact, he was a healthy guy. And in the end, it was sports that brought him to the doctor in the first place. He was playing hockey when he first noticed something was up. Yeah, like three weeks prior to seeking medical advice, I, uh, I'd i be playing hockey and I'd, I'd just have trouble catching my breath and I'd hyperventilate and I'm good at mentally focusing and I'd focus my breath in, but uh, it just wasn't didn't seem right. So, yeah, I followed up with a, at a walk-in. So a walk-in doctor caught it. Caught that it was cancer? Well, caught that something was not right. He said my heart was enlarged. So that, that was mean? the first step. Um, well, I didn't know what it meant. <laughs> I Googled it and looked it up. And, uh, you know, it turned out that I had, a, I had fluid in the sac that surrounds my heart. So quite a bit. So in and out of the hospital. Um, so the first time I went in, I actually had gone for some scans. So I was at a PET scan one day on the 18th of May. Um, Actually, it was a follow-up. So I'd already met Dr. Pham at that point. But um, So initially, at the beginning of May, I went into the hospital, and uh, same symptoms, shortness of breath, a little bit of chest pain, wasn't sure, and um, knew something was up with my heart already, and went into emergency at HSC. And, um, yeah, they did did an ultrasound met Dr. Pham. She saw that things weren't terrible yet, but just not not normal. She was showing one of one of the evening overnight doctors and so she thought that was is pretty different. And um and then when she was showing one of the day shift doctors maybe about three and a half hours later, um, it had gotten a lot worse and that's when I had to have a procedure to rem- to remove a lot of the uh, the fluid. Was there a piece of a technology, Dr. Pham, that made a difference here when it came to diagnosing or figuring out what was going on with Michael? Because he went in with breathing symptoms, then it's a question about an enlarged heart, and the next thing you know, you've you've got stage four cancer. That's a huge, uh, not a difference of opinion, just an incredible road to follow. So what was it that helped pinpoint what was going on there? Definitely. The machine that you were referring to is called the bedside ultrasound. And it's a very innovative um, piece of technology that we now use at the bedside to do point of care ultrasound. So we basically use it as an extension of our stethoscope and we use it for diagnostic purposes as well as therapeutic purposes. And so in Michael's case, we knew that he was just recently diagnosed with stage four lung cancer that was actually picked up with a nodule from a chest x-ray that was done in the community. And when he came into the emergency, it was during an overnight shift and he was complaining of worsening shortness of breath and I was the morning doc coming on to the shift and basically Michael had already been there close to 10 hours and the plan was for him to wait for a CAT scan and so anyhow I just knowing that he had was just recently diagnosed with stage 4 lung cancer I pulled out the bedside ultrasound machine and I looked at his heart and 
I definitely saw quite a bit of fluid surrounding the sac of his heart. But there is a medical condition called pericardial tamponade. And even though he had a large amount of fluid around his heart, his blood pressure was just a little soft and he was still holding on his own. Um, so I said to them, without a doubt, he's got a lot of fluid around his heart. I'm going to come back and re-examine him again. So I showed the doctor from the overnight shift that he was actually sitting in the emergency department with this sack of fluid that was surrounding his heart and making it harder for his heart to pump. And when I actually had the time to finish sign over, I went back and re-examined him again. And at that time, I could actually see that the heart was having a harder time pumping uh, blood forward. Through that bedside technology, the ultrasound. Exactly, through the bedside ultrasound. And never once have I ever seen cardiology come down to the emergency department so quickly. So when I actually captured the images on the bedside ultrasound, I showed it to my resident uh, that was on the day shift with me. And I actually saved the scan on the machine, called cardiology and said, you need to come down. This patient is in pericardial tamponade and he's going to go into a heart arrest if we actually don't remove the fluid. So it saved his life. It saved his life. They, they actually came down within 30 minutes, had him in our resuscitation room and proceeded with uh, what we called heroic intervention where they actually put a needle through his chest into the sack of his heart to drain fluid. And they did it in the emergency resuscitation room. And it's one of the procedures that we rarely do in the eMERGE. Usually patients will be admitted to cardiology. They'll have it done uh, on the the ward or in a stable setting. But I knew that if we didn't do it as soon, that he would actually go into heart arrest. And uh, they did it within literally 45 minutes from the time that I called them in the resuscitation room, which is record-breaking time for us. We're speaking with Dr. Chow Pham, Director of Ultrasound for the Department of Emergency Medicine at HSC, and one of her patients, Michael Houston, who had a dangerous level of fluid around his heart that would not have been caught without a bedside ultrasound. When I think of ultrasound, and I'm sure a lot of people think of the same thing, we associate ultrasound with pregnancy. I never would have thought ultrasound technology in the context of checking somebody's heart is that relatively is that a relatively new thing so for emergency medicine the point of care ultrasound which is now used at the bedside has really expanded to a diverse uh, to have diverse functions and we use it for multiple diagnostic purposes and it's not just it used to be what most laymen most people in the public would actually think is for obstetrical purposes but it has really expanded to looking at the heart, looking at the belly for free fluid. So for example, the way point of care ultrasound actually started for emergency physicians was to use it in patients who actually come in after they've had car accident. If they have belly pain, we actually put the ultrasound on their abdomen and look for free fluid to look for internal hemorrhage and know if they need surgery or not immediately. And we've expanded to look at their heart, to look at their lungs, to diagnose pneumonia much faster, to look for fluid in the chest, to look for blood clots in the legs, to look for kidney stones, gallstones. It's just got a very diverse application. And what's great about it is that when you come in past midnight, and it's hard for us to get formal ultrasound through radiology. It's just a point-of-care test that we can do, and it's got a very succinct clinical question, yay or nay, is there evidence of this type of pathology? And it's great for us because we can actually act on things much faster if the patient's critically unstable. Is the goal to have one of those at I don't want to say every bedside, but I mean, is there only a limited number of those machines right now in hospital that you would need more and therefore the money you're fundraising to to purchase more of those machines? It has become such a life-saving piece of technology for medicine, especially emergency medicine. And although the CAPE position statement is for every emergency department to have a bedside ultrasound machine, but the reality is money is limited, budget's getting cut, and uh, it's not an ideal situation, but we definitely need to expand to have that piece of technology in every single urgent care in every single emergency department and if possible to have at least two to three because the emergency department at HSC is so large and there's different pods between minor treatment area, the resuscitation room, the stretcher bay area where patients are monitored and so for sure you would need at least three or four machines. Michael, it's clear the passion on display from Dr. Pham had it not been for Dr. Femme, you might be in a different situation right now. Absolutely. Yeah. I just think how lucky I was to have met her. And in my mind, I, I didn't think I was that dire, but she was so eager to show the day shift what was going on inside me. That's what saved my life, I'm sure. And can I ask how your prognosis is now and how you're doing and feeling? I'm doing well. Yeah. Pretty much live my life, changed my diet a little bit, but uh, play hockey, do lots of, you know, work, snowboard. 
back to playing hockey, no shortness of breath or anything no, anymore? No, I think it's more anxiety now, just worrying about it. But yeah, like like for me, I, I, you know, it's more of a mental disease now than a physical disease. What's going on with the cancer? I'm taking a drug called Tegrisso, and I was taking another drug uh, called Fatinib, and it stopped working. So basically, it's a it's a TKI, so it's an inhibitor, which keeps the cancer from growing. But eventually, the cells could or do um, evolve to you know to work around it. So you're always kind of just waiting for the next best thing. But you know, in the meantime, you just got to live your life. You know. So right. So for right now, it's holding the cancer at bay, so yeah. to speak. That's correct. Yeah. Amazing. Well, Michael, thank you for sharing your story. And Dr. Pham, thank you for sharing yours and for doing what you do. Uh, Michael clearly wouldn't be here if it wasn't for you. So, Well, the cute story is we actually recruited Michael as one of our ultrasound patient models because I teach ultrasound, bedside ultrasound to my colleagues and residents at the university. And so it's a nice way to bring Michael back on a continual basis because I'm able to follow his heart and see if he reaccumulates fluid into the sac. And so it's a nice way for us to keep taps on him. Like he comes oh, in and wow. lays there and does yeah. he, is he kind of like a little guinea pig for you? Yeah. I like it. <laughs> yeah. Different kind of modeling than what I would have yeah. thought, but I like yeah. it. Yeah. Dr. Chow Pham, Director of Ultrasound for the Department of Emergency Medicine at HSC and Michael Houston, one of her patients who likely would not have survived had it not been for Dr. Pham and the bedside ultrasound that detected just how dire his situation was. And these bedside ultrasounds, your donations are going to help go towards more of them, right, Lauren? Yeah, it made a huge difference last year. The donations last year helped them buy two. They cost about $75,000 each, so $150,000 to purchase two at the hospital there. But as you heard, they'd obviously like to have more and one in every ER in the city, if if not the province, I, I can imagine in terms of how they'd like to have that expand. So it makes a difference. You're, I know everyone likes to look at the prizes, but in case you're thinking, where do my dollars go? Well, that's one fantastic example. Once again, Friday, January 25th, the Health Sciences Centre Foundation Hope to Life Radiothon, presented by Merrick Holmes on 680 CJOB and our friends down the hall at Power 97 from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. You can make your gift today at hopetolife.ca. <laughs> Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb, thank you very much for joining us today on The Start. And now we promised it half an hour ago that we would discover the science behind the keto diet. And for those just tuning in, Greg, you say that someone you know Mm -hmm. has achieved ketosis? I have zero doubt about it. I was chit-chatting with him a little bit last night. I've... I planted the scene. Maybe he'll come in and visit with us next week just to talk about how this has changed his life. Uh, he's older than I am, and he looks about 15 years younger than I do now. With everything that he's done over the last year, year and a half, he looks absolutely incredible. He's uh, one of the top curlers in the in the country once upon a time, and he just realized that he didn't want to he didn't want to go anywhere. He didn't want to be involved in stuff based on how he looked and felt. And he's completely turned his life around and competed in his first bond spiel in Alberta last weekend. And uh, even though he didn't win, he just feels so good about the changes he's made. Well, to talk about the keto diet, we have the host of the Super Awesome Science Show, one of the chorus Curious Cast Global News Podcasts, Jason Tetro, joins us now live on 680 CJOB. Jason, good morning to you, sir. Well, good morning. So the keto diet, the ketogenic diet, what is it? Well, it essentially is a treatment, believe it or not. Uh, it was designed as a treatment for epilepsy back in 1921. And um, <clears throat> back then, uh, what they were noticing was that if you were fasting for extended periods of time, you, you were helping to control epilepsy uh, seizures. So they wanted to figure out well, what was going on. And it turns out that these ketones that we keep hearing about were being formed as a result of a loss of fat. Now, how do you lose fat? You don't eat as much sugar, and you don't eat as much protein, and you increasingly add fat to your diet, and that's how you achieve these ketones. So what happened is back in those days, it was used as a treatment for children. And it wasn't until the 1990s when we had the dawn of the, you know, friends look, who is skinnier, Rachel or uh, Monica, that all of a sudden, you know, people needed to be thin on the runway, even though they weren't models. And so that particular diet had a side effect, which was you lost fat and you lost weight, and it became very, very popular. 
So when we talk about what we eat, and I and I was saying this morning, I've seen all sorts of things because it's a super popular diet right now, but it's hard to follow what might be the best practices if you're interested in doing that. And that's because some of the things I've seen on my social media feed in, include a pill or a supplement that might come with the keto diet. But at the, at the very base level, is it really just about what you're ingesting, your food? Um, for the keto diet itself, yes. So it doesn't matter if you're, you know, ketoing, Atkinsing, um, South Beaching, whatever. There's always um, three components to it. One is you have to reduce the level of your sugars to practically nothing. So your carbohydrates are pretty much gone. Um, And then you have proteins that are moderate just to keep you going, keep you burning. And then the fats, that's the difference between the diets is how much of the fat you add. So um, with, you know, something like the Atkins, you can have as much fat as you want. With something like the South Beach, um, it's it's a moderate. Uh, And with the ketogenic diet, what they do is they actually specify the types of fat and how much you should be having of them. And what you're hearing about with respect to pills and such are what are known as medium-chain triglycerides, or MCTs. You've probably heard that before when it comes to the keto diet. So the more that you're incorporating those, the more likely it is that you're going to lead to ketosis and, of course, that fat loss and, and the weight loss that comes with it. That's sort of the hope. Jason, I always get hesitant when I hear the word diet because I think it's a, about lifestyle and, and lifestyle changes and, and overall change in attitude to, towards food. The experts that you had on this version and this edition of the podcast, did, did they broach that subject at all? Oh, yeah. Well, my first guest, uh, Desiree Nielsen, is a very famous uh, dietitian in Canada. She's written books. She's got TV shows. I mean, she's just incredible. And excuse me, one of the things that she actually says is, this is not something you do for a few weeks. This is not something you do for a few months. You don't even actually see results until probably six to eight weeks after you started. And some people may not even see um, results until upwards of five to six months, depending on how resistant they are to ketosis. This is a lifestyle. So if you can't handle it, if you can't, you know, allow yourself not to eat carbohydrates at high levels. This is not the diet for you. Uh, We also have another expert who's on, uh, Adrian Lindblad, who is with the uh, Canadian Family Physicians. And what she tells us might actually make you think of something different than the keto diet, which is that if you are on a low-calorie diet versus a ketogenic diet, then you're probably going to lose about two pounds less weight over six months. So in terms of diets, like if we are looking to adopt a a new diet or a new lifestyle, to lose weight, is the ketogenic diet uh, a good option in terms of where we should turn first? Um, The fact is, is that, as I said right from the top, the ketogenic diet is a treatment. It is supposed to be used in combination with other treatments to be able to help reduce neurological disorders. That's what it's all about. The fact that you do lose some weight, the fact that you do lose some fat, is a very good thing. However, our second guest on the show, uh, Dr. Roger McIntyre, actually says that we should be looking at this as being a form of treatment to help individuals. He's studying how it helps with mood. We know how it helps with epilepsy. That's really where we should be looking at this. And then... On top of that, maybe the idea that we should be looking at the ketogenic diet as a means of being able to control weight and reduce fat. But because of the strict nature of it, unless you are committed, unless you are a massive Olympic caliber um, curler in terms of your ability to stick to something, (laughs) you probably are not going to stick to it. And as a result of that, you're not going to see any of the results. And the other thing that Adrian Lindblad on the show points out is that if you stop that two pounds that you've gained that, or that you've lost that's extra will come back and you'll probably end up gaining weight afterwards anyways. And, I'm, and it might stop too when you realize when you say ingest more fats, you don't mean the salt and vinegar chips, which I enjoy on a daily no. basis. <laughs> <laughs> well, Desiree actually gets into the different types of fats. Yeah. And we get into the age-old question, which fat is better, coconut or olive? 
Wow. That sounds like uh, really good stuff, Jason. I, I'm also uh, just sitting here realizing that uh, my sister's got MS, uh, altered her diet. I won't say which one she used just because I don't want to encourage anybody to make a decision based on what I'm talking about here. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, she notices a dramatic difference in her in her symptoms based on what she's eating. So it's not only healthy people that can uh, generate a benefit from these sorts of changes, which is sort of the basis for, for ketosis in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. And if you think about it, multiple sclerosis really is a neurological disorder, okay? And if you have what is known as relapse remitting, then what happens is you have bad days and then you might be able to get better. You may be able to help control the levels of those relapse remittings through your diet. This is something that people have been looking at. Um, And so going into a ketosis form may end up being beneficial. However, there may be other ways and that's why you talk to people like Desiree, who are dietitians. They specialize in being able to help people with their nutrition and their physiological condition. So rather than listening to Germ Guy here or listening to someone who's sending in an email or someone who's talking on the curling rink, what you're going to do is you're going to talk to a dietitian. They're free if you do proper referrals and find out which one is going to be best for you. Yeah, like I wouldn't even know where to start if you were to say you need to re- remove sugar, not reduce, but remove it from your diet. I I wouldn't know what foods that I'm eating are have sugar in them and which ones don't. I have no idea. I would pretend I didn't even hear you, to be honest, because when you start, <laughs> no, but when you, it's true, Jason, when you start looking for sugar, it's in everything when you, it's really hard to control that one. Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, I mean, I, I even have something that I have during the morning, which is really a nut butter. And I'm thinking, you know, this is great because it's a lot of protein and it's a lot of fat and everything. And then one morning I just happened to look and I'm like, holy crap, there's like 30 grams of sugar in there. No wonder I feel good. <laughs> You're fooling yourself. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the thing is that yeah, I'm, I'm definitely not doing keto, but I got to tell you something. With that, that and a nice cup of coffee in the morning, I feel great. <laughs> <laughs> I like the combo. Thank you. Jason Tetro. <laughs> he is known as the germ guy. He is also the host as, of the Super Awesome Science Show, which you, you can find. We've actually linked it to our 680CJOB Instagram story if you would like to subscribe to the podcast, or you can just find it wherever you find podcasts. Just Google Super Awesome Science Show Global News, and you will find it there as well. Jason, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Oh, it was such a pleasure. Have a great time and enjoy the show. Hey, thanks for listening to the Start Podcast. We are available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now and never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate the show, tell us what you think, and hey, even tell a friend about the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Greg is at GMACWPG, that's G-M-A-C-K, WPG. I am at Brett McGarry, B-R-E-T-T-M-E-G-A-R-R-Y. And Loren on Twitter is at McNab on Global and on Instagram at McNab on C-J-O-B. Talk soon.